I'll be reading Matthew 5, 38 through 48. You've heard that it was said, an eye must be put out for an eye, a tooth must be knocked out for a tooth. But here's what I tell you, do not fight against an evil person. Suppose someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek to them also. Suppose someone takes you to court to get your shirt, let them have your coat also. Suppose someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles with them. Give to the one who asks you for something. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow something from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But here's what I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you. Then you will be children of your Father who is in heaven. He causes his son to shine on evil people and good people. He sends rain on those who do right and those who don't. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. If you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? Even people who are ungodly do that. So be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Thank you, Isley, for reading that for us. And don't let... Um, don't let the, the cute voice with which that was read um, take away from the weight of what Jesus is calling us to there. <laughs> um, in fact, I thought, you know, maybe some of this could be received better if just I let Isley preach the whole sermon about loving enemies. That <laughs> uh, so thank you, Isley, for, for beginning us with that. It's good to see everybody this morning. This is a time when our kids are going to be dismissed for Children's Church, and so they'll head out that direction. They were ready for that. Uh, and so that's for three years old through second grade. They'll head to the other building uh, for that. And then as Pam said at the beginning, we've got a nursery over there as well and a, a, a cry room in the back if you need any of those options this morning. Uh, okay, so there's a lot in those verses that Isley read for us just now. That's uh, in Matthew 5, as she said, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. If you want to kind of turn there and be following along as we talk about some of those verses this morning, uh, and we're going to be focused really on, on three Greek words this morning, which I know sounds really exciting, um, but we're going to talk about three, kind of focus our thoughts around three words, uh, these three Greek words, martus, teleos, and agape. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning, uh, and we're going to start with that first one, martus which isn't actually in that scripture that we read this morning at all, but I think it's fitting. And so the Greek word, martus, shows up in our New Testament as the word witness. And so you may see today, this is like super casual Sunday for me today. I've got, I, don't, I think this is the first time I've preached in a t-shirt, so it's a mile, milestone day for me. <laughs> um, but this is the shirt, as again, as Pam said at the beginning, our, our teens and some of their Parents and families are at Soul Link this weekend. They've been there this weekend, and they're having uh, a great time. And I was with them Friday and Saturday, and then Jason and I switched Saturday, and he was at a conference in Houston, so it worked out for us to switch. And so he met up with them yesterday, and I came back. And uh, they're having a good time in Houston. Should be on the way back uh, now, actually. Uh, but the theme of, of Soul, Link, Soul Link this year was witness. 
Uh, and so I thought, well, it'd be a good day to wear the shirt and uh, bring some awareness to our teens who are there. Hopefully we continue to be prayerful for them that the things that they've learned there and absorbed there will, will stick and will take root in their hearts. Um, and, but I had also planned on talking about this word witness in the sermon today. So I thought it would be a good tie-in and, and that would fit. So that's the shirt. Uh, but this word, martus, that is translated in our Bibles as witness, originally uh, kind of was, was meant as witness in the way that we would think of witness, someone who bears witness to something or, or can provide evidence or, or testimony or a story about something that they have observed through eye-to-eye um, witnessing of what happened. But later on then, as Christians came to face more and more persecution... This word, martus, came to take on new meaning. Uh, and it came to take on new meaning in, in a way that, that sounds more like the word that we would think. It came, on, it came to take the meaning of the word martyr. Uh, because what happened was, as more and more Christians bore witness to Christ, many of them were being persecuted and put to death. And so the idea of witnessing uh, became known as... as this idea that when you bear witness to Christ or even when you bear witness to something, uh, anything that you've given your life to or given yourself over to, that it may be that that causes you to be put to death and that maybe even your blood would eventually bear witness to whatever it is that you are giving testimony about. Uh, and so these, these word, this word came to take on t- new meaning uh, because of what was happening to Christians in many cases. And so it's interesting then, I think, to note uh, that Jesus tells his disciples this in Acts chapter 1. This is Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus tells his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we find then throughout the rest of Acts and really throughout the rest of the New Testament that that happens. They are witnesses in all of those places uh, in the way that we would think of traditional witnesses. And that is almost certainly the, the idea that Jesus has in mind when he's telling them that. But interestingly enough, Christian tradition teaches us that of the 12 disciples, 12 apostles who are there in Acts after Matthias takes Judas's place, Of those 12, all of them but John die from martyrdom. Uh, Christian tradition tells us that 11 of them uh, end up being martyrs. Only John survives to old age, and even he does so in exile. Uh, And so all of these men were witnesses in the way that we would think about witnesses. But they were also witnesses in that they were martyrs. And so here's why I wanted us to start there this morning and why I think that's relevant for our conversation today. Uh, For early Christians, bearing witness to Christ and being put to death for bearing witness for Christ became synonymous. Uh, Persecution, violence, uh, death were just expected outcomes of giving your life over to Christ. They were not the exception. It was very much uh, a a thought that this is where your life may be headed if you're going to give yourself over to Christ. Uh, Mistreatment, persecution, even death were all things that simply came with the territory of being a Christian. 
And the expected response was not to retaliate or defend or to engage in kind, but to endure and to suffer for the sake of Christ. And it led some of the early church leaders to say things like this. This is a quote from Justin the Martyr, who you may guess was martyred. Uh, He said, We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Uh, Lactantius said, who was an early Christian author uh, in Rome, I believe, If we all derive our origin from one man whom God created, we are plainly all one family. Therefore, it must be considered an abomination to hate another human, no matter how guilty he may be. For this reason, God has decreed that we should hate no one, but we should eliminate hatred. So we can comfort our enemies, comfort our enemies by reminding them of our mutual relationship. For if we have all been given life from the same God, what else are we but brothers? Because we are all brothers, God teaches us to never do evil to another, but only good, giving aid to those who are oppressed and experiencing hardship and giving food to the hungry. And finally, uh, an early Christian theologian by the name of uh, Clement of Alexandria said, Above all, Christians are not allowed to correct by violence sinful wrongdoings. Uh, And so now you can take those words and you can have different thoughts of, of what they may mean for us and the relevance they may have for us in modern society and the ways that we would go about things. Uh, But that's how the early church leaders saw themselves living out Jesus' words uh, that that primarily come from this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is what early Christian leaders, and this was the prevailing kind of attitude uh, as it related to early Christian thought, this way of of living out Jesus' call to be people who loved to such an extent that they even loved their enemies, and, and you see there, when you play that out to its fullest extent, uh, it's going to have some ramifications for how you interact with others in the world. And I think this is the part of the Sermon on the Mount where we really start to, to push against some resistance. Um, because up to this point, you know, I think we could all pretty much get on board with at least the, the basis of what Jesus is talking about, even from a worldly point of view. Uh, so even from a worldly point of view, for instance, uh, the, the world may see value in anger in some instances. But even from a worldly point of view, we, people would understand you don't want to let your anger control you or consume you. Uh, you. You could say that about a lot of things that come before this. But now when Jesus says, if someone is, is mistreating you, you should just let them continue. Uh, if someone asks something of you, you should just give it. And a, in fact, you should give more. And you should love even your enemies. Now we start pushing against some stuff. (laughs) Now we start having to ask ourselves some tough questions. Uh, And now things are getting getting real personal, right? Um, And I would argue if they're not, it's because we're not going deep enough within ourselves to ask ourselves some questions. And so, this brings us then uh, to our next Greek word. The second Greek word we're looking at this morning is teleos. 
Uh, this word does show up in the scripture that Isley read for us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, specifically, it shows up in that last verse. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, and so again, if, if the loving your enemy stuff didn't get you, now Jesus, it's like Jesus has gone over the edge of the cliff at this point, right? You may even be thinking, this is where you lose me, Jesus. <laughs> the anger stuff, the keeping vows stuff, you know, loving people, I can get all that. But now you're asking me to be perfect, like that's a bridge too far. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important then that, that we think about how we, how we interpret and how we understand this verse. Uh, because how we read that verse, I think, actually has a lot to do with how we, we think about this whole teaching. Because you can think about this in one hand and think, well, see, this is really just evidence that Jesus is talking in hyperbole here. Because surely Jesus doesn't, doesn't expect me to be perfect, right? I can't be like God. Jesus knows that. And so this is example. This is just all kind of hyperbole. And I can't love my enemies any more than I can be perfect. This is just Jesus making a point with shock value. Uh, and so I've, that's why I think it's important to understand what Jesus is trying to get at when he says perfect. The word that he uses there for perfect is this Greek word teleos that I mentioned. Uh, and this word teleos is, is not perfect necessarily in the way that we would think of the word perfect. It doesn't mean moral perfection or one's ability to, to do everything right 100% of the time. Uh, it's not perfection in the way that we would typically define or think about perfection. Instead, teleos communicates wholeness or something that has been made complete. Uh, It's the word that they would use to define or describe mature adulthood, that once someone, especially once someone maybe had progressed all the way through their education uh, or their training for a job or something and had kind of reached adulthood, uh, they were considered to be fully mature or complete or perfect. They've kind of arrived at some state of, of kind of fullness uh, in terms of, of their maturity as adults. And so, for instance, it's the same word that Paul uses in a well-known verse in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, I press on toward the goal uh, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature, which is that word teleos, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And so the word mature there is the same word that is translated as perfect in our scripture in Matthew 5. It's this idea of of fullness, of completeness, maturity, of perfection in the way that a Jewish audience would have thought of perfection. And so I think what we find in Matthew 5 is that Jesus is telling us that we reach maturity, we reach completeness in our capacity to love, not when we love our family well, not when we love our friends well, but when we love our enemies well. When we are able to treat well and to desire good for those who mistreat us, for those who would wish us harm, for those who are different than we are. Jesus says, this is when your love is fully, complete, mature. Um, and I think, so an understanding of love doesn't start there. I actually think an a, a understanding of love, which I'm going to kind of get to at the end, starts with a love for God. All this has to be rooted in love for God, love for Jesus, which then naturally extends out to love for friends and family. But Jesus says, you want to know if it's mature, if it's full, it's complete? How do you feel about the people 
who are trying to do you harm? How do you pray for the people who you find difficult to love? Uh, What are you doing for those people who are just really difficult to be nice to? You want to test for how complete your love is, then ask yourself those questions. Uh, When we love those who are powerless, unlovable, and unable or unwilling to love us back, uh, we begin to get a picture of the type of love that Jesus is calling us. Uh, That's when the love of God is seen most clearly in our lives. And I think that there may not be a better way to show others the God that we serve than in the ways that we love our enemies and resist the human urge for vengeance, retaliation, and revenge. And so to make that point, uh, Jesus once again pulls kind of this this law from from Jewish thought and tradition, and he says, okay, you've got this one wrong too. (laughs) Uh, He says, all right, you've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Let me tell you about that one. Uh, Because I think what we find, we find this law kind of used and, and twisted even in the ways that people discuss it today. And so what had happened in Jesus' day was they had this law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, And in many ways, it had become seen as justification for retribution uh, or retaliation or vengeance. That, hey, if you do something to me, I have every right to do something back to you, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's even sometimes how you hear that used today. Hey, they they did something to me first, so I've got the right to get back. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, But actually, the original law was meant to put limits on what you could legally do in in returning uh, wrongdoing that was done against you. Because it is human nature, if someone does something to me, it's human nature not to just get even. It's human nature to get ahead. That if you take something from me, I've got to take something worse from you. If you do something to me, I'm going to do something worse to you. We want to go one step further. You take my eye, I'm going to take your eye and a tooth. (laughs) That's human nature, right? Uh, And it's also human nature to kind of take those things into our own hands. Uh, I'm going to get back at you because I've got a right to do it. And so this law under the Old Testament law was designed to limit what you could do and to say you had to go through the law and you had to go through legal means to do it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's meant to put limits around what you could do in retaliation against someone. Uh, But again, because of the ways that people twist laws and find loopholes and all those other things, um, it became this this way of extracting revenge and this justification for kind of living out and playing out personal vendettas against other people. But Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 not only that, uh, not only have you missed the point, but I'm going to take it a step further. He says, I don't even want you to just get even. In fact, don't resist or push back. Continue willingly in whatever it is that the other person is doing to you. And so, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Uh, If someone uh, asks for the shirt that you're wearing, go ahead and give them your coat. And then comes one that may sound kind of odd to us, but, but had to really sting, I think, for a Jewish audience. He says, if someone compels you, someone asks you to carry their stuff one mile, then go two. And it seems like part of what he's at least referencing there is, uh, so remember, the the Jewish people are under Roman control, Roman rule at this time. 
And so there was a law that a Roman soldier, Roman soldiers had to carry around all this bulky equipment and gear, weighed a lot. And there was a law under Roman law that a Roman soldier could compel or force a Jewish person to carry their stuff up to a mile. Uh, now imagine that you're a Jewish person. That, that wouldn't sit very well with you. Uh, imagine if some other country, uh, an adversarial country, came in, invaded us, occupied our country, took us over, and then, to kind of top it all off, they said, by the way, if a soldier from our country comes and, and compels you to carry their stuff, you got to carry it a mile. Doesn't matter what you're doing, which direction you're going, you just got to take it. We probably wouldn't take very well to that. <laughs> so Jesus says, if someone asks you to carry their stuff a mile, you just offer to go too. Don't push back. Don't retaliate. Go in the direction they're calling you to go. Uh, and so I want to say a, a couple of things here. Um, first of all, there's some ways that you can read all of these that are, that are almost as if Jesus is being pretty submer- uh, subversive. Uh, and in modern language, we might even say trolling some people here. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a thought, especially with the, the law about the Roman kind of soldiers, uh, this is one interpretation of it, um, that, that it was actually law that you couldn't require them to go more than one mile. Uh, and so if you offer to go two, you're putting that soldier in a difficult predicament. What do I do now? Um, and you're kind of forcing the soldier to say, no, 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 you can't go more than one mile. I've got to take the stuff back now. And in doing so, maybe you're kind of pointing out some of the injustice of what's going on. That, that if someone strikes you on the cheek, Maybe part of what they're doing is just seeking to get a response from you. Uh, Maybe if someone is insulting toward you, maybe they're hoping that you're going to respond by escalating your tone as well, right? They're looking for a fight. What would happen if you just said, you know, okay, turned around and left? What if you de-escalated a situation instead of escalating it? There's this disarming quality to each of these examples that Jesus seems to be getting at. That, that perhaps the way to answer against these things isn't to meet it with more force, but is instead to, to use love and kindness and compassion as a way of disarming violence and hatred and insult and persecution. And, and I think it's also important then to point out that I believe all of this is a call to strength and not weakness. These can be read as just kind of Uh, Jesus encouraging us to be timid and weak and not stand up for ourselves. But I want you to think about the strength of character that it would take for someone to slap you on the cheek and you to not respond. Uh, That's not weakness. That's an incredible amount of strength. Uh, The strength that it would take for you to get to the end of a mile carrying someone else's stuff and say, I want to keep going and go too. Uh, That is strength. It's not weakness. And so on the opposite side of that, because I think they're, they're get, we, we get into some murky waters there, right? And so we, we may begin to ask questions. You may even have a question over your head. That I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are lots of questions that this would bring up. One of the questions may be, so what about a woman who's in an abusive relationship? Is Jesus telling her to stay in that? Uh, and I think the obvious answer would be no. And that for her, it is a sign of strength to say, I'm going to stand up for myself and, and get out of this relationship not stay in an abusive relationship. 
um, that would be a sign of strength. The idea here from Jesus isn't that we would just be timid people who other people are able to do whatever they want to. The idea is that we are disarming hate, that we are disarming persecution by another means, and that we are seeking to break the cycle of retaliation, of vengeance, of retribution, of violence that is apparent throughout our world. Uh, That seems to be what he is calling us to. And all of that then leads to the most scandalous, radical, controversial, and unreasonable of Jesus' commands that we love our enemies. And in that command, we find the third Greek word uh, for us this morning, which is the word agape. This may be one that you're more familiar with. We, we recently talked about it uh, on a Wednesday night, actually, not too long ago. Uh, and agape is the word for love that is used in this command. And Agape doesn't connote a a romantic love like you might have for a spouse or even a familial, brotherly, affectionate love that you might have for a close friend or another family member. But it is a word that communicates a strong and unyielding love that is seen in actions. Uh, It's a word similar to charity. Some of your Bibles, some of your versions may even translate agape as charity in many cases. Uh, but not a charity that is, is forced or coerced or, or done for tax reasons or public relations or anything like that. Uh, it's a charity that comes from a place of deep care and devotion and conviction. Uh, agape is a love of action. It's a love that does. It's been described as a love that wills the good of another. And so Jesus is telling us to literally desire good for our enemies, to serve them, Uh, to find ways that we can do good things for them and toward them, to act in ways of of love and kindness. Jesus says that anyone can love a family member. Anyone can love someone who can do something for them. But to love an enemy, to love someone who is unlovable, to love someone who is incapable of returning love with love, that is perfect love. That is the full embodiment of God's love. Uh, And so this morning, maybe you, if you think of an enemy, maybe someone just immediately springs to your mind and you think, I know, I know what that means for me. Uh, Or maybe you feel as, you may feel as if you don't have any personal enemies. Uh, But if Jesus wants me to love my neighbor and my enemy, uh, I seem to think that includes pretty much the breadth of anyone in in my life. (laughs) Uh, And so I think that the, the application then for us Uh, is that even if we don't have any personal enemies, I'm guessing that there are people that all of us find difficult to love. Uh, That may include people that we interact with on a daily basis. It may include groups of people with whom we rarely interact with, but for whom we harbor feelings of of distrust or hatred or jealousy or fear. A love of enemies should cause us to soften our hearts towards those who are different than us, It should shift the perspective with which we view others and widen the spectrum of people with whom I interact. And it should also encourage a disposition and posture that runs counter to the positions of fear, retaliation, and defensiveness that fuel many of the actions in our world. And finally, we should be pursuing all of those things because while we were in fact enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
This is what Paul tells us in Romans 5. Uh, and after he tells us, he writes about the, this idea of us being enemies of God. He said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so part of how we can show the world Christ, part of how we can be witnesses in this world to Christ, part of how we can live out our baptism as, as those who have given our lives, ourselves over to Christ and be, been washed in Him, been clothed in Him, is to love our enemies well and to seek to do good for all of those around us. Uh, and so I'm going to invite the band to come back on stage and we're going to, to sing before we share in communion again this morning. And so this week, May we look for opportunities to do something for someone who we find difficult to love. I would invite you to pray for them. Not that they would get what's coming to them, but that they would be blessed. Let them know something you appreciate about them. Consider the world from someone else's point of view. Refuse to jump to conclusions and instead give the benefit of the doubt. Serve perhaps where it's difficult to serve. In short... To be perfect. Let's stand and sing, and then we'll share in communion this morning. Blessed be your name, when I found in the desert place, go walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise, when the dark Blessed be your name, for the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name, on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name.
Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Amen. We're going to pray our prayer of confession uh, together as we prepare our hearts and minds to share communion this morning. And I'll pray the parts in white, and together we'll pray the parts in yellow. Father, we confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable and paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. 